Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 26. Just a little bit of review before we read the passage. Chapters 24, 25, and 26 hang together. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier and thought about it through these sermons that, in a sense, this is, um, this is similar to the time that, that Jesus was in the wilderness being tested before he, became, before he entered into his official ministry those three years before his death. And in the same way, God is testing David by... Um, he's in the wilderness, he's running, he's, he's now, um, now will be forced out of the land of Israel. And, um, and this is before he officially takes over the duties. And so there's, uh, there's something to this testing. There's something that uh, God is doing to discipline him and build him up so that he might... Um, take over the kingship having gone through this. And so, um, you remember the the two previous chapters? Uh, The first was in a cave. uh, Saul comes into a cave that David and his men are in the recesses of, and and David uh, does what? You remember what David does to Saul? He does what? Spares his life, but he he uh, he does cut off a piece of his robe, and again, that that is a symbolic act of sort of ta- tearing the robes of the king and taking them for yourself. And then in the this, in chapter twenty-five that we went over last time, um, in twenty-four, David had uh, interceded and held his men back. Remember, he he chewed out his men so that they wouldn't attack Saul. And then in 25, a woman must intercede in order to keep David from shedding innocent blood. And so um, David is held back from this sin by Abigail. And, um, and then what do we learn at the end of that chapter? What happens at the very end of that chapter? You remember what happens to Nabal? He dies. He dies. He is, uh, Abigail tells him what she did, and it said his heart died or his heart became a stone. And then 10 days later, God strikes him down and kills him. And so God takes vengeance on that man rather than David. And so we'll see in this passage that we read tonight that David has indeed learned from that. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is. 1 Samuel chapter 26. It says, The word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today... God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. But David said to Abishai, 
Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now, please, take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die. Because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that is at his head. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. He also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. And David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. All right, so back to the top of the passage. Saul is told of David's whereabouts by the Ziphites. The Ziphites. Who are the Ziphites? They are the inhabitants of Ziph. <laughs> the inhabitants of Ziph are, it's a, that's just a town in the hill country of Judah. And this is not the first time that we've come across the Ziphites. Back in chapter 23, at verse 19, the Ziphites did the same thing. They told Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is, not David, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at, at Horish? on the hill of Hakala, which is on the south of Jeshimon. So they've already, they've already given up David once. Um, there is some animosity here, it seems, or some allegiance to um, Saul. And um, Kish, in this area of Judah, the hill country of Judah, is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem um, within the land. Uh, Saul, again takes his 3,000 men and uh, goes up against David's 600 or so. David uh, sends spies this time and wants to know exactly what movements are going on with, with um, Saul. And um, they arrive back. And uh, so David knows that uh, Saul is coming. Now, um, David comes to the place where they're camped. 
and we meet a guy named Abner. This is not the first time we've come across Abner in the book of 1 Samuel. If we go back to uh, chapter 17, um, Abner is, and you know chapter 17 is when, um, is the, the, uh, the chapter we remember in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, David and Goliath, and Abner is there with Saul at the end of that. Um, verse 55 of chapter 17, Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I don't know. And the king said, You inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him, David, and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So Abner is the one who, who brings David back to Saul, and, and David's holding the head of the Philistine. Right? So Abner's, Abner knows David. Abner is close to Saul. And Abner is going to have a continuing role in um, the rest of this, this book and into the next. Um, he's related to Saul. Does anybody know what his relation to Saul is? He's a, he's a generation older than Saul. He's Saul's uncle. And so Saul has his uncle as the commander of his armies. Um, he's present when David killed Goliath. After Saul's death, Abner fostered war by proclaiming Ishbosheth king. So rather than David, there's they're sort of dual kings at that time, and uh, David is is uh, ascending the throne, but um, Abner is the one who proclaims Ithbosheth king. Um, ben, could you go turn down the gain on this mic? It's ringing just a little bit. Does anybody else hear that ring? I just heard it. It's ringing like crazy. It's a, on the bottom. Um, the um, <clears throat> He's... Um, He's, uh, if Abner is, is David's or Saul's commander of his armies, who becomes the commander of David's army? Joab. Is there a relation there? What? Yeah. Well, eventually, eventually Abner would, um, <clears throat> would come over to David's side. We're going to get there down the road in a few chapters. But Abner um, comes over to David's side. And, um, but Joab, the commander of David's armies, eventually murders Abner. It's a lot of, I mean, Abner has a, has a significant part in what's coming up and, uh, and has already in this book. And so he is... Um, he is here in this. Now, um, in verse 6, David says to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother. So um, Ahimelech the Hittite we never hear of again. And in fact, he doesn't, he doesn't decide to go. So, you know, maybe, maybe David judged him as uh, incompetent at that point and said, well, if he's, he's not going to fight with me, then, then he's not going to lead my... Um, armies, but um, Abishai, Abishai becomes an army commander, and Abishai is a son of Zeruiah. Zeruiah is David's sister, okay, and um, so so this is David's nephew, right? Thank you. <laughs> this is David's nephew. And Joab, Joab is another one of his nephews. Joab is the brother of Abishai. Um, Joab is a son of Zeruiah. These sons of Zeruiah cause a lot of trouble and, uh, and are, are close around David. Obviously, the sons of David's sisters would be. But David asks the question, who's going down with me? And Abishai says, I'll go. I'll go with you. And, and you've got to be thinking at that point, what does David have in mind? To go down to the camp of Saul? 
Um, Abishai, like you and I, thinks it's to kill Saul. Right? So he's, he's ready to go. He, he's, um, he's right along with David. He's a loyal uh, servant. And he comes along. Now notice where is the spear. Notice the spear becomes prominent in this. Why would the spear become prominent? Because the spear has already been prominent in the story, right? Two times that spear has been thrust by Saul at King David in order to kill him. And now that spear is, is stuck in the ground at the head of Saul. And that wasn't merely just, uh, you know, like putting your knife on your nightstand. So, I mean, it wasn't merely that. It probably was that as well. But it also mar- marked out the, the spot in the camp where the king was asleep, where the king was residing. And so the camps would then surround the king. And who's closest to him? His general, right? Abner is cl- the closest man to uh, King Saul. And so again, David's companions, David, just like in chapter 24, David's companion says, ha ha. Look what God has done for you. He's put Saul in your sights and we can go and dispense with him. And David's, um, notice what Abishai says. Then Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spirit of the ground with one stroke and I will not strike him the second time. I think Abishai in that is making, is making an allusion to the fact that Saul had to try twice, and it's only going to take him once. This is, it's, this is manly boasting, right? Saul tried to kill you twice with that spear. It will take me one stroke, and he will be um, dead. And what is David's response? It's consistent with what he said in chapter 24. It's consistent with the other time that he had the opportunity to take Saul out. Which is what? I will not put my hands. I will not shed innocent blood. I will not put my hands on the Lord's anointed. So again, he's still seeing Saul as the one that God placed in that position. And he's not willing. What is David not willing to do in regard to the kingdom? He's not willing to take it by force. He will receive it in the Lord's time, but he's not willing to take it by force before the Lord's time. Even though every, all of his counselors are saying, aha, you know, it's time, kill him, be, be done with it. Um, and and um, we might uh, reason the same way. We might have some sort of legal argument that says he's attempted murder several times, then therefore he's, he's due to be murdered himself. But David says... As the Lord lives, surely, no, before that, verse 9, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? Right? And that's exactly what Abigail had taught David. You can't do this. This would be to shed innocent blood. Don't do it. And then he says this, and this ties into what he learned from Nabal. Right, what he learned from God's actions. As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, either the Lord's going to take him out, he's going to die of natural causes, or he's going to get in some battle and be killed. Right? So he he just resigns himself to the will of God. Right? He resigns. Some way Saul's going to die and God's going to figure out the, the kingdom and this transition. And so, one, he's the Lord's anointed. Two, God is sovereign. And so we can rest in that and God will take him out however he sees fit. But just think about that for a second. Abishai is chomping at the bit. Kill him now. Kingdom's yours. We want you as our ruler. And he says, well... God's going to deal with them, and he may, he may do it in 10 days. He may do it in years by natural causes, or he may do it down the road in a battle. And that's quite a resignation to the will of God, isn't it? Um, he has not just... He has, a lot of, um, he has a lot of reasons to want to take out the king, one of which is 
He's being forced out of Israel. He's wandering around from cave to cave in the wilderness. He has none of the comforts that, that he had even when he was a shepherd in his father's house. Right? So now he's, um, and yet he's resigned to the will of the Lord. And I think, I think we see, um, we certainly see that Abigail has gotten to his conscience. So David instead does what? Takes his sword and his water bottle. I get the spear. He took his spear. But why the water bottle? I think he was just thirsty. He may have, he may have needed some water. There may be something symbolic to that, but certainly the spear is figured in into this story. And so we know that taking that spear is it's like tearing the robes. You're saying something about the kingship. This marked where the king was in the camp. And he's taking the marker out of the camp and leaving with it and going across to the mountains. The jug of water may have been um, just further, uh, uh, further proof that they were in the camp, right? That they were right there. I've got two things from Saul and you can't deny um, one or the other. So David's response is no... Um, God will strike him, and then he takes the spear and the water jug. And it all happens because of a miracle. What's the miracle that happens? This is, this is um, you know, this is Tylenol PM for, uh, from God. They're all, there's a deep sleep that falls upon them to allow David to go safely into the camp and do this work. And so um, this is a miracle that, you know, you're you're not likely to tiptoe through 3,000 troops and get to the the commanding officer and mess with his stuff and go out of the camp without being touched. But we know that this is because God is doing what? God is protecting David. God protects David and allows him to go in and do this work. Sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So David leaves Saul's camp and he speaks. Who does he speak to first and why? He speaks to Abner rather than to Saul. And why does he do that, you think? Yeah, Abner has, Abner's supposed to be protecting Saul. That's his one reason for being there, right? To protect the king. And he has not. And so, um, very interesting way to start. Will you not answer, Abner? <laughs> Will you not answer? Why does, he, why does he address Abner? Because his duty is, as the commander of the armies, to protect the king. And he has failed. And then David says, not only has Abner failed, but everybody else has failed. And, um, and here's proof. I've got his spear and I've got his water. And then... Finally, Saul speaks. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. My son David. Saul is still speaking in those terms with David. And it's hard to know whether he's, he's trying to diminish David or he's trying to be... Um, soft toward David. It's hard to know, but, but remember that it hasn't been too long ago. We, we forget this. It hasn't been too long ago that Saul, through Doeg the Edomite, killed an entire city of priests because, and an entire family of priests because they had given David the showbread right, and the sword of Goliath. And so remember that that's, the, that's still the Saul we're dealing with here. He had been bloodthirsty. He had shed much innocent blood in Israel. And so um, things have not moved far from that point. But David, David objects again to Saul's pursuit and brings up that, uh, why, are you searching for a, a single flea? Uh, are you hunting for one partridge in the mountains? 
And it is hard to find partridge, isn't it, boys? It's hard to find ruffed grouse up in, in, uh, in Michigan because they look like the ground. And you drive by and walk by and flush four times, ten times, twenty times as many as you ever see. Right? And here David is comparing himself to one hunting for a partridge. Um, Saul to one is hunting for a partridge. And he says something in the middle of it that needs a little bit of reflection. Verse 19. Now, therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, and we can insert there, who have stirred you up against me. Cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. What is, what's David getting at there, though? What is David getting at there? What do you think? Well, at the end of it, he's... Yeah, he hasn't been able to worship in the temple. He hasn't been able to use the means that God has provided the people, which all are in the land, because he's been out. And so um, there's certainly that. But what about these alternate views of what's happening. He's saying to Saul, if God has stirred you up to pursue me, then this. If men have stirred you up to pursue me, then this. Um, if God has stirred you up, he sa- what does David say is necessary to solve this situation? What kind of offering? A sin offering. Some sort of offering. Would that offering be, be made by David? Would that may- be made by Saul? Would, you know... I don't know, but, but what David is saying is there are means by which men can be reconciled and God can be honored, and that's through offering the sacrifices that he commands. So if there's something between us, if there's something going on, if God has stirred you up, then, then let's go to God and figure out what my sin is. If God has told you to pursue me, then I want to offer, I think it's David who's saying this, then I want to offer a sin offering. I want to be right with God. But if it's men, they're all cursed, and God's going to deal with them. I mean, think about that. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord. And that's speaking of attachment to the land where God is worshipped. And they've made me, and they've done it saying, go serve other gods. You are no longer in, in Yahweh's kingdom. Go serve other gods out of this land. So you think about that and... And David is perhaps, um, I mean, there's a humility in saying what he said. It seems like a charge, but think of the first part. If God has stirred you up, then I, I want to offer an offering of, I mean, that he's even willing to consider that that's an option at this point. Shows his humility. If it's from the Lord that you are stirred up against me, let him accept an offering, Okay. Let's use the means that God has used and stop pursuing me through the hills to kill me. But of course we know that it is by men that, they, that he is doing this. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And then remarkably we see again... Saul's remorse. And again, I'm not calling it Saul's repentance. This is Saul's remorse. And the words of remorse can, can look very much like repentance. Um, but again, we have, we have Saul's track record in continuing, continuing sin after this point. It's shortly after this that Saul does what? Consults a... Which, right? Calls up the soul of Saul. Can't wait to get to that passage and see what we, um, the Lord has for us there. But, but um, so Saul's, Saul is um, proving his, his, his um, 
unwillingness to depend upon the Lord. So that's why I say here, this is remorse. This is the remorse that Esau had. Though, though he sought for repentance with tears, he was unable to find it. Right? But listen to these words. I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed serious error. So he said three things there. I've sinned. I've played the fool. I've committed serious error. You know, we can't pick out and say, well, he said serious error. He didn't say sin. Yeah, he did. He said, I've sinned. Right? He has sinned, and he's acknowledging that before, the, before, before David. I don't believe he's acknowledging that before the Lord. David replied, behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of your young men come over and take it. I, I often think of the young men, how young men were used in battles. In previous eras, they were like errand boys, right? You could send a young man over to the opposite camp because you knew that he wasn't, he wasn't going to defeat your armies or there wasn't going to be a surprise. And so, but just think of the young man who had to do that, right? Who had to go over to David and get Saul's spear back and bring it back to the camp. That would take a particular uh, amount of courage. And so, um, so it, it appears that that takes place. And the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Again, David's thoughts go not to Saul, but they go to the Lord. David's thoughts are continually going to the Lord. And David David essentially says here that what he said before, the Lord will judge between me and you. And that again is faith. That again is waiting on the Lord. That again is David saying... um, Vengeance doesn't have to be mine. The Lord will repay. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, and we expect him to say what? So my life should be valued in your sight. But that's not what he says. He says... Behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight today, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distress. Right? He could have bargained with Saul at this point. Right? He could have used this as leverage. And in a sense, he is. (laughs) But at the end of the day, he says, it is is God who will guard me. It is God who will guard me. I pray that my life will be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. Saul doesn't have such concern. Saul doesn't have such concern. He's a schemer and he's a politician. And he's an unregenerate man. And then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. Again, not focused on the Lord, focused on his deeds. You're going to do a lot. You're going to go places, David. You know, you, you have a bright future ahead of you. And it's such an inane thing to say at this point. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. And they would never see each other again from this point on. That was the last thing that Saul would say to David. Blessed are you, my son David. You will accomplish much and surely prevail. And they each go their own way. David is faithful. He points. His mind is always set upon the Lord. Saul is an earthly man and his, his, his mind is always set upon politics, the earth, the world. What applications do we make out of this passage? What applica- how, how do you apply this to... How does this word affect you? And that's not a, a hypothetical. I want to hear what applications have been wandering through your minds in this. I've got a few, and I'll get to them, or you'll get to them before me. But what do you think? The fact that being able to submit to the authority and position of Saul, even after the things that have been done to him, you touched on that a little bit. That's right. Makes me think of, of Jesus with with his parents, 
right? That passage in Luke says that he continued to obey his parents, you know? This is the Son of God. And he's obeying his parents. And he never sins. And they're commanding him to do things, and he submits. And here's King David who, yeah, who, who has been close to the king, who has been in his chamber, who has played music for him, who has ministered to him, and who's been, um, who's been killed twice, who's been dragged through these situations, who's been cast out of Israel, and he says, I will not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. That teaches us some humility. That's the humility of, that's the mind of Christ. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, sort of attitude as, as Jesus dies. Um, absolutely. Yeah, it shows David having that heart for God. It is. Absolutely. And the contrast between David and Saul is pointed. Is pointed and brings that out even more. Mary, you were going to say something. Yes, this is a time when we should follow what the Lord wants and not what we want. What David wanted was to be back in Israel, worshiping the Lord, free from the wiles of, of, of Saul. But now he's going, to, he's going to have to. The next passage is David fleeing to the Philistines. David is forced out to the enemies of the Lord. And uh, even there, he's productive. But yeah, this, this teaches us to wait on the Lord. It teaches us to, um, to de- depend upon God, but also to um, resolve ourselves to His will and to not put our own into practice. Yes, that's good, that's good. Anything else? Yeah, Ben. Okay, the way we submit to the magistrates, there's honor the king. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even when they're passing laws that are killing our freedom. Sure. In our sense, you know, not anything real that David's going through, but... Sure. Yes, there's a way to, um, to honor the king as long as the king is not telling you to go against the will of God. Yeah. How he fought through it? You mean... You're thinking about how David was, um, was courageous through all of that? Yeah. I, one of the things I was thinking about is you know, David's decision to go into the camp of Saul, was that courage or, or audacity? Was that, I mean, what, what is that? Um, it's probably both. I mean, it's probably both of those things. He has great courage to go. And then I began thinking about Psalm 23, about God's, God putting the, um, i got to look up the verse, but... Um, Psalm 23, um, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, I'm safe even in the presence of my enemies. Your provision is always there for me. And you can see that in his causing the, the, these 3,001 men to fall asleep 
deeply. Imagine the snoring going on in that camp. It would be crazy. But, but they're out. And that is, God, that is God protecting His anointed one. Right? That is God protecting His, his king, King David, that has, you remember, already been anointed for this task. And so you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, you wonder if, if that psalm is written by David in order to remember, commemorate these, um, this event. and Because um, it is in his wilderness wanderings, in a sense, and then he comes back and dwells in the land of Israel in the presence of the Lord for, for the remaining um, years of his life. So you wonder about the parallels there. Um, second, what I, what I thought about is to have a more patient and informed restraint. A more patient and informed restraint. When David, um, uh, when David resists, we learn this. Do we learn from... Do you and I learn from previous experiences in our lives, right? He learned from Abigail and Nabal, and we see it clearly in this passage. He says, well, the Lord will take care of him. Do we learn from God's providential acts in our life, or, or do we just think of them like unbelievers? This is just the succession of time. It's random. It, it's, it doesn't connect. It's happenstance, it's circumstances, or do we see God guiding us and teaching us and disciplining us all along so that in the present we can be godly, right? I mean, think about the providence of God. Think through um, the, the pillars, the big things, the pillars in your life and what God was teaching you at those moments. Um, do... Um, do we attempt to interpret, apply God's providential acts? Attempt to interpret God's providential acts. And that means just chewing on, meditating on, thinking through what that means. Obviously, that means having experienced those things and then going to the Word to figure out what good they have accomplished for us in our lives. Um, you know, if, if God has put you through a season of darkness or trial, why? Why? Why Why did God do that? Well, He's disciplining us as sons. We know that He's caring for us in those dark times. And then also, He causes us to go through difficulties wherein we realize the comfort and the mercy that He's given to us. And then what do we do with that comfort that we've received? We comfort others. Right, Second Corinthians one three through seven. We have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. We have comfort in the sovereignty of God, and then we take that comfort and apply it to others who are in a season of darkness, and help them through it. And so, those are a few of the applications I had. Your applications are are good as well. But but um, again, this is how we we should approach these scriptures is um, these are scriptures not simply to be memorized and learned and heard, but they are to be heard and done, right? So um, we're learning from the example of David and his Christ-likeness in this passage. Any other comments before I close in prayer? Any other thoughts? Two, three? All right, let's go back at it. Ladies first. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he doesn't just rest uh, back on his heels. Beyond, yeah, he doesn't go beyond the will of the Lord. Wonderful, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you, Ed, Ed's next.
That's beautiful. That's, that is a wonderful, um, wonderful acknowledgement there. That's that's after he uh, numbers the people. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. He doesn't want to fall upon them. Yes. He'd rather fall into the mercy of the Lord rather than to fall into the hands of men, right? To have a foreign army come in and afflict the the people. Because he knows God is is more merciful than man will ever be. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he, he, he knows the Lord. He knows the Lord, and that informs his actions, informs his thoughts. It uh, shapes him. Um, He has the Holy Spirit. Um, Yeah, the, the other thing I was thinking on this was, yes, David has a heart for the Lord, but often the Lord uses means in order to remind us of his goodwill, and he did that through Abigail. And perhaps this chapter would be different if, if he hadn't been disciplined, and I'm using that word intentionally, by Abigail, disciplined by her and by the Lord through her. And, um, and so, wives, there is, um, again, it's just a reminder, though the call in Scripture is for you to show deference and obedience to your husbands, that does not forbid you from keeping him from doing godless, stupid things. You are there by the Lord in order to warn him from those evil ways, right? And so um, remember that as well. We see the fruit of Abigail's words and the Lord's work through Abigail in this chapter from the previous chapter. So that's encouraging. Well, with that, unless there's Praise God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. No, it's good. I mean, this, I, I love that people are thinking through it, and it's a fruitful passage, so that's always good. Interpreting the providence of God in our lives um, means, one, not just treating events that happen as um, random random acts of the next thing. But to be looking through our lives and saying, okay, if God was at work there, and he was because he's providential in my life, what was it that, that, that I'm to, what was it that I'm to uh, learn from that s- situation? What did Paul learn through um, shipwreck and stonings? And what did Paul learn from that? Well, I think he learned contentment. I think he learned... Uh, obviously he learned that Jesus was true because Jesus told him, I'm going to show you how many things you must suffer. And then he continued to suffer through his whole life. But, but that, that, also, um, that also led him to, um, to, have, to have the sort of mind where he could... I mean, he's the apostle who, who commands us to give thanks in all things. And he had enough things to be embittered against the Lord for, and yet he's the apostle who tells us, give thanks in all things. And so I guess what I'm saying is we can, um, I mean, I, I think of the anxiety that I dealt with last year, and I'm still trying to figure it out. I may not figure it out. I may not have a direct answer from the Lord, but that shouldn't, but I shouldn't just chalk it up to, to nothing and move on. It was so significant that how could God not be at work in it? Okay, and so I, I chew on that, I wrestle with it, I examine myself because of that, I, look, I search the scriptures, I read Job, you know, and just try to figure out why would God press down on me at that point. Was it my sin? Was it, was it, um, et cetera, et cetera, those sorts of things. So that's what I'm saying is, is we can just, um, 
we can become agnostic when it comes to what God brings us through in our lives. But I'm not telling you there are infallible interpretations for the things that happen in your lives. This is the only infallible revelation we have. But that doesn't keep us from looking at those events, going to the Word, and trying to understand what God is teaching us um, through what we experience. Does that make sense? Is that reformed enough? <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah. And he always put the small picture in the context of a large picture. Mm-hmm. So if he was a man after God's own heart, what he did each time he made these vital decisions, is there a question of God? God doesn't make wrong decisions. He doesn't choose the wrong things. And so he never gave up on God's trustworthiness. Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, Just in his willingness to see this whole event as coming out of his own sin is that acknowledgement and willing to be humble in the midst of it. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for, for being our God. We thank you for the, the, the lordship, the uh, sovereignty that you have over us. Father, we know that this, this doesn't mean that we'll have expensive cars and big houses. Uh, more likely, it means that we'll have, have suffering as your son suffered. And so, Father, I pray that as you discipline us, as you lead us and make us fit for heaven, Father, that we would not become embittered against you, that we would love you, that we would have hearts like David, more so like your son Jesus, whose bread was to do your will. Father, I pray that we would rest in your will, that we would rejoice in you, that we would be strengthened by you to run the race, to win the prize. Father, I think of, of um, Michael and him not being with us tonight. I pray that you would continue to heal him and heal him of this infection. Father, we pray for those uh, women who are carrying child. Lord, sustain them this evening and tomorrow and the next day. Lord, give them joy in their, their labor and their difficulty. And Lord, we praise you for your mercy to us in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.